Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whenever you are. Thank you for joining us at the Industrial Cybersecurity Pulse podcast. Don't really know why I put the stress on in there. Industrial Cybersecurity Pulse podcast. We're back with you again. Another great conversation today, this time with Sung Kim, who is the Chief Product and Technology Officer at iBase-T. Yeah, I am your host, Gary Cohen, one of your hosts, only one of your hosts, the lesser part. The other host is... I am your other host, Tyler Wall. Hey, Tyler, you know what? I'm going to ask you a question today. I'm going to stop you. I know you probably have a question prepped for me, but I'm asking you a question this time. Hey, you got me there because I don't have one yet. Oh, good. To- oh, this all worked out well. Yes. This all timed Excellent. out excellently. Yes, please. Um, I was like, one of these days, I'm just going to interrupt you and ask you a question. All right. My question may take, a, I, don't, I don't know if mine will hold together as well as yours do. Uh, I'm going to go with the desert island conceit. Oh, You're on a desert island and you could only take one movie with you. I know it's a weird conceit because it can't be streaming because there's no internet on the desert island. That's just nope. ridiculous. So yep. maybe a DVD player washes up and one DVD washes up. What is the one movie? What is your desert island movie? The one um, that you can, not like your favorite movie, yeah. but the one that you can rewatch a thousand times. Oh man. I think trying to think of what movies i've seen a thousand times because that is a fantastic indicator i have seen oh there was a movie i saw like eight times in theaters i can't remember what it was though yeah it was yeah clearly it was very impactful for you i saw it eight times in theaters and now i've forgotten what it was a disgustingly high amount i think i could see i could watch furious seven probably a lot of times, you know, I got that fantastic Paul Walker send off at the end brings me to tears every time. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that's my go to. Wow. I was certain you were going to with the Star Wars movie there. I yeah, mean, see, God. I thought I thought about it. I thought about saying Revenge of the Sith. I did. I sat on it for a second. However, I feel like if I watched it too much, that it diminishes it. Uh, I watched it yesterday for, uh, for people wondering uh it, yesterday was may 4th which is star wars day um i watched may the fourth be yesterday. with you yes may the fourth be with you uh but i think i would go with like a furious seven i've seen 500 days of summer an egregious amount of times uh, i could probably do that one too but i am going to make a confession here and you're probably going to lose respect for me i don't know the audience will but you probably will tyler uh i have never seen a fast and the furious movie Really? I've never seen one minute of a Fast and the Furious because usually, I mean, they're on TV. You could flip through. Literally, I've never seen a second of a Fast and Furious movie. And I think there have been 37 of them at this point. Yeah, there's uh, been 10 is the one they're on. I know 10 is coming out soon. Yeah, I think there's still been 10, though. I think there's like one they're not counting in there. Uh, yeah, so there's 10, which is part one, and then 11 next year, which is part two. You haven't seen a single one, though. That's impressive. I have not seen a single one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. Honestly, good for you. Yeah. I don't know what I'm spending my time on, but it's clearly not on Fast and Furious. Maybe the next time there's a pandemic, that's what I'll do for the first month of the pandemic. I'll just sit and watch Fast and Furious movies. Yeah. The the Fast Um, Saga. Yeah. What's your go-to? Fast Saga. Sorry. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to go down the Vin Diesel rabbit hole. Yeah, that's fair. He does talk a lot about family, though. So he's yeah. a very family-oriented man and living his life a quarter mile at a time. So It's funny because my perception of Vin Diesel is totally skewed. I was thinking this the other day. 
uh, I tend to think of like, what happened to Vin, whatever happened to Vin Diesel? He was really big for a time. And then obviously there's the, been, he's been like the star of the biggest movie franchise. I don't know, probably, yeah. probably second to Marvel, but I just yeah. haven't seen any of them. So it's off my radar. Right. Yeah. He really hasn't been in much aside from Fast Fierce. I mean, he was in a lot of movies in like the nineties, right? Boiler Room was one of them. Uh, He's pacifier. Have you seen the pacifier? He had uh, no, I have not. But I mean, yeah, he did Saving Private Ryan, and he had a yeah. whole the triple X thing or whatever yeah. that was. Riddick, that was yeah. another one, yeah. right? So he had a good career and continues mm-hmm. to have a good. Plus, it, it, we would be remiss if we didn't point out that he voices Groot in Guardians of the Galaxy. You're right. You're right. Yeah. So huge. Um, <laughs> I'd say my my Desert Island movie again. Weird conceit to begin with. Uh, I probably go Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, that's a good one. That's one that whenever it's on TV, I'll pretty much sit down and watch it. Mm-hmm. So I've seen that one. It's just candy, you know. It's <laughs> there's I don't know. There's a lot of redeeming value to it, but I'll watch that movie over and over and over again. No, it's a solid choice. <laughs> I can appreciate that. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, so today we're gonna talk. Uh, like I said, up to uh, Sung Kim from iBase T. We're going to be talking about uh, manufacturing execution systems. He does a lot of work with those. A lot of good stuff in in cybersecurity. I also wanted to point out that uh, I always, before we record, I always do a sweep to see what's going on in cybersecurity news. Uh, there was another large-scale ransomware attack as we're recording this week when you listen to this a few weeks ago. Uh, but Dallas, the city of Dallas was hit with, by, a, by a ransomware attack this week. It was right before uh, a municipal general election, but it shut down a lot of the city, the municipal system, city services. So like courts were closed, water utilities weren't processing payments, uh, permits couldn't be issued, public works and zoning, like a lot of stuff was impacted. And this is the kind of stuff we talk about all the time about critical infrastructure is it is, especially for ransomware, ripe for attack because, I mean, if you're a, a, a major metropolitan area, you can't have your critical systems going down. So the, uh, the, that inclination to pay and pay quickly is pretty high. And so that's why places like this get ransomware. But ransomware is, uh, you know, w- when we were at RSA, um, we asked our last uh, podcast with Leslie Carhart of Dragos and asked them their big takeaways from RSA. And one of them was ransomware is still a huge story. So here we go. Ransomware is still a huge story. Well, how about them apples? Uh, yeah, I know kind of building off of that too, something Sung talked about, uh, something Leslie talked about when we talked with them last. It's just the necessity to just implement basic cybersecurity practices, right? Uh, we're talking... MFA, multi-factor, multi-factor authentication, um, just making sure you have more than one way to secure your devices, talking uh, just basic understandings of, hey, zero trust, never trust, always verify, but then also continuously monitor. Um, when it comes to like phishing, just not, just knowing what is, like what's bad, and I know that sounds vague and broad, but uh, usually like these phishing emails, at least up until recently, uh, would be very weird looking and weirdly formatted and all of that. Now with chat GPT and all that, that's going to evolve over time, uh, especially within the psychology of cyber attacks and the phishing sphere entirely. But 
Um, just, you know, knowing what to look for in a phishing email, understanding that, hey, uh, not everything that gets sent to you is always good. And then just remembering to report it to spam and delete it and forget about it. And, and, and report it to your company. Let them yeah. know that these things are out there and that people shouldn't be clicking on them. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. As we continue to do more, more and more episodes of the podcast, occasionally we get into these really technical discussions, uh, full disclosure, many of which are above Tyler and I's head. I won't speak for you. Or above my head. Um, <laughs> but at the end, we ask for suggestions. And it almost always comes down to basic cyber hygiene. Uh, there was something that someone said, and I'll, I'll spoil it now. But at one point during the podcast, I think the quote was, the minute you get lazy with cyber hygiene, things get out of whack. And I mean, it's true. It is taking these basic steps. It's not going to protect you from everything. You are still susceptible to attack. But you got to do these things like MFA and encryption and some of the stuff Tyler just talked about. And Sung will get into it in the podcast. Uh, I think he gives either four or five suggestions for things that you should be doing, can be doing that do not take a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of effort. They are the basic cyber hygiene principles that you need to do to keep your organization safe. Um, and we we're talking to, to Sung specifically, you know, and, and he's talking manufacturing execution systems, MES. You know, MES is really, in a lot of ways, a kind of core to manufacturing. It's really, so it's, it becomes very important to be protecting these systems. And not only to manufacturing, but, and this is one of the things, uh, one of the reasons that I found Sung so interesting, and that, or that the conversation with him interesting, is it really, you know, it's used heavily by, in defense, it's used heavily by DOE, these sort of contractors. It is, so if you're talking about protecting these systems or protecting IP, when it gets into the defense industrial base, or it gets into the energy sector, or these critical utilities, Man, does that become important? Because as we talked about with Dallas, these things, people are trying to hit these systems. Yeah, I mean, it even gets into a broader conversation of protecting the supply chain at that point, too, because we're talking about these MES systems that are important to the supply chain. So effectively, protecting these MES systems is another avenue just to protect supply chains as a whole. Exactly. And those are, I mean, it, I, I, I sort of feel like in the national media and even in cybersecurity media, the supply chain doesn't get as much play as it should because maybe because there hasn't been a huge, highly publicized supply chain attack that's happened in the near future, you know, as solar winds and Gaseya, but those were a while ago. But this is something that is, you know, people who who work in cybersecurity uh, are concerned about. People who I almost just called cybersecurity experts, but I think we've we've learned a lesson about that. Yes, we have. Um, yeah, I mean the the term, uh, I guess, phrase uh, or title, uh, cybersecurity expert, is a little too broad, right? There, uh, cybersecurity is such a large, uh, a large pill. If I have to put it in a pill in uh, a pill form, it's just a very large topic, right? Um, so to say one person is an expert expert in cybersecurity as a whole is, I think. Uh, a little excessive. And we've talked to people who thought that, think that, like including Leslie, uh, about how the term cybersecurity expert should be used very carefully, um, just because there's so many facets of cybersecurity. You have endpoint detection, you have micro-segmentation people, you have uh, uh, protection at the edge. These are all very different. 
the psychology of cyber attacks is different than the actual technical part of cyber attacks. It's a whole different branch. Um, so identifying these different experts and um, industry workers within the cybersecurity field by their actual title within the sphere of cybersecurity is much more apt than cybersecurity expert as a whole. And referring to them as cybersecurity practitioners in the event uh, of maybe they like that broader term. Who doesn't? But um, to say you're an expert in cybersecurity as a whole is, uh, it's a little dangerous. Not dangerous, but it's, it's, it's broad. And it's an engineering field, like all engineering fields. It's a field where you're constantly learning. I mean, if you get complacent and think you know everything, uh, an attacker or a system is probably going to teach you pretty quickly that you're wrong. So we had... Tyler and I had, I think, three conversations recently where we said cybersecurity expert and somebody went, eh, we don't love that term. <laughs> um, so we're going to stop using it and start calling people cybersecurity practitioners. Uh, yeah, a lesson learned, but uh, but it makes sense. It's like Tyler said, there's so much out there. I don't think anybody really considers themselves or could be an expert in all fields. I mean, just looking at IT security versus OT security, totally different animals. So um, yeah, lesson learned. Mm. So let's go ahead and bring in Sung Kim. He is the Chief Product and Technology Officer at iBase-T. He's an experienced technology architect and a published computer scientist. Uh, as the Chief Technology Officer, he leads iBase-T's long-term technology vision and is responsible for the overall product architecture and infrastructure deployment profiles focusing on open standards and integration technologies. He also facilitates the technical community within iBase-T. Let's go ahead and bring in Sung Kim. All right, today we have Sung Kim with us. We'll be talking a lot about uh, MES systems, uh, but, but Sung, first, thank you so much for being with us. It is my pleasure, thanks for inviting me. And we usually like to start off just learning a little bit about the background of the people we're talking to. So if you can tell us a little about uh, how you got here and and what stoked your interest in cybersecurity? Sure. Um, so I studied um, in technology as a you know a software engineer uh, in telecom industry. This was back in late nineties, early two thousands, and then I went to grad school to get my PhD. And after get, getting my doctorate, I worked as a professor at a university before I joined iBase-T. And uh, at iBase-T, I played different roles. Uh, from architect now I'm the uh, chief product and technology officer. And in regards to cybersecurity, um, you know, as you know, before pandemic, you know, everything changed with the COVID-19. Uh, before pandemic, when we get an RFP for request for proposal from prospects, um, you know, cybersecurity it was just a checklist item. Do you do this? Do you do that? And what kind of framework do you follow? That kind of thing. And we checked that off because we do uh, most of those things right as a independent software vendor and but you know throughout pandemic uh, you know people working remotely and deploying their application on cloud so it became reality i mean they need to protect their asset and you know you heard about the ransomwares and different attacks so it really became really concerned and i'm getting can you provide evidence the things that you have, you said you were going to do or you're doing, provide us the evidence. So it, it is the reality. So it is something that every enterprise application vendor, any software vendors will need to keep mindful of and keep persistent with it. It's not just one time thing. I think it's just cultural and persistent practice that you have to carry out. That, that makes sense. Um, 
So let's talk about manufacturing execution systems. You do a lot of work with those, or iBase-T does. Why do attackers target MES systems and, and what makes them vulnerable? Yeah, so as you say, MES is like a core to manufacturing. Uh, it's an execution system that allows shop floor personnel, technicians to follow certain steps. So iBase-T catered mostly with uh, complex and discrete manufacturing uh, facilities. Uh, a lot of defense uh, contractors and a, a lot of DOE contractors as well, where it requires a lot of compliances and stringent procedure of doing things. That comes with their core IP. So for example, you know, the, the you know, the, the fire uh, uh, planes and the satellites and missile systems that they design in the engineering system like PLM, those uh, 3D models and visual instructions goes into MES system. So it's naturally, or it's an IP that a lot of, you know, bad actors would want to have take into, you know, I want to see what Lucky does. I want to see which version does, right? Those kind of things. So it is, and also the, at the same time, MES system uh, kind of connects IT and OT. IT meaning the engineering side of things, and OT meaning like sensors and devices, edge devices, operational technology. So truly, MES is in between those two in the core two enterprises. That's why attackers are targeting MES to just take a look at the precious IP that uh, you know the, the those manufacturers have developed for the last. You know, many, many decades, actually, right? I mean, a lot of this company go back from early 1900s with their IP. So not only the actual models, but the actual process of doing things. And and it has become even more important because in manufacturing, as you heard, the digital thread and digital twin, twin is the reality. And, and, and I've heard that even uh, DOD is requiring their uh, contractors provide a cyber asset we used to call it digital twin, but now people are starting to call, uh, started to call it cyber asset. And otherwise they'll have like 10% of the payment back because they need to be able to look at the cyber asset and see what's been done on this physical asset that they, they get and being able to trace things out, who did what at a certain point and use it for as manufactured uh, items, as well as at the services like MRO, the, the maintenance, repair, and overhaul. So those digital assets and cyber assets gets used throughout the life cycle. And we're talking about the decades, right? When you think about the airplane, it, the life cycle of the airplane is about 34 years. You go premier like uh, airlines and then go second tier and then third country. So it goes up to 40 years of you know pro uh, production and then it comes with all the services. So naturally, attackers wouldn't want to attack MES and MRO systems. And let me go, let me go back to something you said earlier. When you're talking about protecting IP for these, I mean, what you mentioned, it's critical infrastructure. It's aerospace and defense. It's uh, it's medical devices. It's nuclear. It's space. It's all these very important industries. So keeping them secure is you know, triply important. Exactly. I mean, this is, I mean, we, we see on the movies and TVs and national security. This is like really national security. I mean, it, it, it has, so um, most of, I mean, not everybody, but uh, over 90% of our customers are really stringent on ITAR control, meaning that only the authorized person can see the data and even know the data exists. So that is, that is core priority of the MES system as well. And so what you're talking about, yeah, like this privileged access, what kind of role does zero trust play into protecting MES systems? And I guess 
even further into that, what can happen when an MES system gets attacked? Right. So um, the zero trust is really, I mean, it's been around for a while, right? So used to be with any, I would say software, but any technology or anything that you do, convenience used to trump everything, right? I want to do be able to do this quickly and serve our customer really quickly. So that actually left with a lot of, um, you know, systems and persons and resources having access to something that they're not uh, allowed to have access after a certain period is over. For example, you're going into dev and test of certain project and you're developing something. I want to be able to quickly deploy this into a, into a test environment. So you usually have like a kind of super user privilege because I want to be able to log into the system and look at the log without actually talking to the IT or talking to the DBA because I need to do things and I'm in the time crunch. So naturally you ask for the super admin, the root access to things. And with this zero trust, especially with this cloud age, everything is based on network model. So you used to, in, in, in two-tier and three-tier architecture, the applications used to have just a closed communication between the modules within the application. Nowadays with the cloud, even within the application, the communication between different containers or different microservices are network-based. They go through IP and ports, right? So. Uh, having a root access, having a super user access is going to be a biggest threat because, you know, a lot of these cyber attack cases are people losing their username and password or compromising their credentials, right? So with really good intention, you do things, but, you know, there's a really, you know, bad thing that can happen. So with a zero trust, what you want to do is you only have access, just about right access to do things. And you shouldn't even access. Uh, you shouldn't have access to outside of the RAM that you are playing with. As an application developer, you shouldn't have access to anything outside of your application. Not even like you should create a services account uh, that actually does what you need. And then if you have to have access to the logs or change the configuration of the system, that has to be elevated with a different access. Uh, you know the, the actor, and then that actor on behalf of the application uh, developer does that for you and provide the result back to you and the application uh, developer can carry on her task. Uh, for example, um, in, in, in AWS, we have uh, the, the identity and access management uh, IAM module. And when you deploy things, you create a services account that actually creates different types of resources like VPCs and network between different modules and even DNS control. And then um, it locks it down and then application gets deployed on the cloud and application needs to have access to the log. It should call the API then that API will provide the data for that application. You not you no longer can actually go after the, the file system and grab the log and parse it and do things, right? So that's the main concept for Zero Trust. And um, as, as a uh, enterprise, you need to ask your software vendors what's their... What do they mean by zero trust and what kind of segregation they have on the access control versus, you know, the end user authentication, as well as the um, different types of account that kind of traces of account that application creates, not only at the runtime, but also from the very beginning at the, you know, the network uh, architecture and deployment and all of those along the line. 
what types of uh, uh, accounts do you create and how do you lock it down or do you actually destroy it? you create it and destroy it and go on to the next one so those kind of those are the kind of questions you want to ask your vendors as well so you talked briefly about um like the breaches happening through what can be considered like the psychological side of cybersecurity right where uh you have these employees that maybe aren't trained up to par and so they can get into the back end that way into like your MES systems. Um, can you discuss the role of employee training and awareness in mitigating cyber risk in MES systems? Right. So bridge, I mean, I think we have been doing it as uh, kind of mandated training. And so, I mean, we all know about the, you know, the password policy, how to protect this, but it's, it's more of the cultural shift. It's not just for the MES system, but all the tools and technologies, even everything. And, and and people call it, as you know, the cybersecurity hygiene, right? The minute you get lazy with hygiene, things go out of the whack, right? <laughs> Same thing with the personal hygiene. So, I mean, there's some best practices. It's really simple. Like I would call it maybe four or five of them, like basic protection. Do you know if there is a MFA, multi-factor authentication, because you know your password can be compromised and people tend to, we know that we all have the common password that we use on different websites, right? That is why you need to challenge the password. Something you know and something you are. So a lot of, uh, a lot of companies with a password RAM is going towards passwordless. They're tracking your devices. They're tracking where you are. They're tracking your personal things like, uh, you know, the biometrics. So multi-factor authentication is key for the end user authentication. And, and also with the devices, including edges and tools and sensors, those where the OAuth kind of uh, the, the protocol comes in, being able to actually um, authenticate the devices that's trying to access. That's the basic protection. And also the encryption of the data right do you encrypt your data at rest and do you encrypt the data at a transit um i've heard that the, you know the i've uh, seen an, an internet article out there that uh, you know those sensors out there you know those thermostats and things that iot uh, that you have you get like you know hundreds of attack random attacks so the attackers do not actually target you in particular. They just scan the IPs and scan the ports all over the place and see if they, because a lot of these vendors come with default admin username and password. And we tend to use the same default admin username and password when you deploy and when you install something like camera, for example, or your phone, right? So they just use those default uh, username and password, just scan all the things that's out there and see, you find it's like kind of phishing. You fish for something, you find something, oh, this person, is this a contract for this one of these big companies? And then you have ways into this big enterprises. That is a key thing, the encryption. So your application in the enterprise, because you cannot trust anybody that's coming into the facility. Do you have encryption at rest? And do you have encryption at transit? Um, and the, like you say, Tyler, right? The zero trust access control model module is only the authorized person can have access to. Just because you're a manager, just because you're a CEO, you shouldn't have access to all the things, right? Uh, that's a that's a big compromise factor. And also uh, another thing is, can you actually restore back to the same state? When you are getting compromised, uh, ransomware is a big example, right? Do you have a practice of proper backup and 
you know, we used to use it and we still use it for disaster recovery, DR strategy. And do you do that? And so can, how quickly can you come back to the same state once you detect the compromise has happened? So I think those are four things that for the uh, cybersecurity hygiene that we need to follow. Uh, yeah, we'll actually touch on a few of those as we go. That's some great advice. Um, let's talk about CVEs for a second, because as somebody we talked to a while ago on the podcast, I remember said, once you get visibility, you're going to have a flood of CVEs. I assume the same is true in, in MES systems. How do you effectively prioritize and address these critical vulnerabilities or manage this flood of CVEs? Right. So uh, the basic, the, the most basic is stay with the latest and stable version of everything that you use. Um, and then CVE is uh, because of the this attention to cybersecurity, especially with the CVEs, we have a lot of people like cloud engineers and security engineers at different companies actually looking at different components and trying to find you know attack factor or exploiting factor right for example lock for day you know there was a security engineer alibaba found a you know issue with lock for day and it got really you know the became really big right so um it comes so the reason i say this is you know, CVEs and the number of criticals and highs, you know, those numbers that get reported when you scan uh, your software, those are moving target. The same piece of software, you scan it today versus you scan it like next week, you will get different numbers because along the line for the week, there's a lot of diligent security engineers trying to find things and diligent, you know, the developer trying to fix things. So um, do not, I mean, you should ask what you're scanning or how do you identify CVEs to your vendor. So do they have proper scanning mechanism? Do, you, do, they, do they do it regularly? For example, you should do it every build cycle. Let's say developer has, for example, a sprint of two weeks. Every two weeks they do official build, right? Even like some companies do it daily builds. So whatever the, the build cycle is, because you're, you're getting new components or new code into the system, you should do the scan. Then not only do you do the scan of and identify the CVEs, those CVEs, the list of CVEs should be looked at by the component owner at the uh, you know application development team, because there's I mean there is a dedicated application security team, but they do not, they do not know the impact that the CVE has for that particular component. So you should have the component owners looked at that and addressing it, and then. They should be diligent uh, to go out to the either vendors. So they should have active communication with the vendors, their vendors, as well as open source community to get the fixes in. Sometimes there's no fixes available. Then you have to push by ticketing, let them know that this is really important for us. Could you please fix it so we can apply it? And then my big recommendation for the uh, the, the manufacturers for uh, looking at the enterprise application CVE is, is not only do you look at the number of CVs, but also look at the mitigation plans from the vendors. So usually, you know, there's a three categories, right? The CVEs that you fix within the patch or releases, those are the, you know, the CVEs highs and critical that fixes are available from uh, the vendors and open source community, you know, upgrades and tests and fixed. Second category is CVs that do not apply to that uh, application. Meaning that you know CV says, oh, 
if you're using this component and the, by the way, you're using regex of those component, then you are affected. But the application itself does not use regular expression from that component. So it doesn't apply. So you can have that category. So it doesn't apply to that. And But you have to be, as a vendor, you have to be, you have to do your due diligence to prove that it doesn't apply. So you have test cases of using that components with regular expression uh, within the code and see, yeah, it doesn't apply. And third category is, yes, the CV is there, it's a critical, it does apply, but we don't have fixes for it. So what do you do? So you, the vendor should provide a mitigation plan. You should ask your vendor, do, what's your mitigation plan? So whether it's as simple as turn off that feature, because we don't have CVE, we don't want to. We don't want to open that exploit or do this workaround that can, that thing. And then until next patch, when the fix is available, we'll apply the fix. So that's the best thing you can ask, right? Those three categories, and especially the mitigation plan, because many manufacturers do want to know what to do when there's an exploit. So we need to guide them how to address those, how to mitigate those. Where do SBOMs or software bill of materials fit into all this? How can they help with this process? That is a really good question, right? And this is where uh, a lot of uh, vendors like us sometimes do struggle because we have been using really a lot of components because, you know, you don't have a, like, you know, hundreds and thousands of developers working on in particular application, right? Um so we use a lot of open source. We find the things from the commercially available, you know, COTS uh, components. Uh, instead of building, you buy things, right? So that's where you have a lot of dependencies. So, so you should have a software bill of material, meaning that all the dependencies that you use, there's a lot of tools out there that can actually generate those. And at IBST, I think it's more important than just, uh, you know, the dependencies and, you know, security related issues. It's also the license management as when, are you using the licenses? There are some licenses restrict our customers to open up things and we don't want that, right? So we need to monitor all the components that we use. If, you know, for example, one single developer saw a particular component, yeah, really convenient. It solves everything I can. She doesn't pay attention to the licensing, just includes it. So we need to monitor those and scan those. And this, the second thing, um, I would actually do is end of life is we're seeing a lot of end of life, different end of life of this component. And when it does go EOL, then there's no more fixes available for the component. It's really important to manage the sanity of the component. So as, as a software development uh, team, you should have a comprehensive well, internally, at least internally comprehensive as bomb and make sure you have all the dependencies, direct dependencies, as well as transitive de dependencies with the versions. And, and also I would actually go further with keeping up with open source community. If there's open source uh, touch, uh, attached with it, then you need to take a look at how active the community is. Because if it's just one person developing everything, even though it's like the, the top of the components, right? Solves everything for you. You cannot really depend on your entire application to that one person. If he goes on vacation, there's no fixes coming out, right? So those all the information has to be managed in the monitors. So yeah. So let's talk supply chain for a second. Um, what risks are there to MES systems from third-party vendors, and how can you manage those risks? Supply chains is complicated thing, right? 
<laughs> just do you not only do you have first tier that you directly deal with just like software bill of material as bomb you have second tier and third tier and down the line you have like probably have my own pop shop uh, supplying those one of those components back right and uh maturity of cybersecurity even even medium-sized you know the uh, the firms are really i mean it's really it, it takes a lot to keep up with the cybersecurity hygiene and then can you expect that with the, like really small suppliers so that's the risk on supply chain so um and the quality as well not only cybersecurity and the quality of the product are they building uh, you know to the specification that you need those components for by the way ibst has uh, something called supply quality management uh, sqm what it does is it actually allows oem vendor like big vendors to create kind of yeah i want to i want you to follow this inspection plan when you supply a component i want you to follow this inspection criteria and tell us whether you have passed or not uh don't do that on your system do that on our system so it's a first article inspection when they come in uh you know suppliers log into the sqm module that has limited access to the actual inside data and the inside the you know, quality control personnel can create this inspection plan and do this do that do that and they actually uh, follow the same plan steps and check that off to make sure quality is there i think the security should be should be treated the same way as almost like a delegation right so but pr uh, provide us that you follow the same cybersecurity. so that's where i think um you know more to do with those certifications so cmmc i mean as a you know SaaS provider you have SAC 2 type 1 and 2 different types of cybersecurity uh certifications will um you know enlist your you know you, you know that you know that as a as a organization you're following those uh framework that is set by at like i, I want to say like minimum standards uh so I think it's the risk is not everybody follows the same thing. That's why you need a certification that they follow the standard way of doing things. And also visibility, uh, like, uh, you know, at the second and third tier, what's your strategy for the visibility of their practices, practices and uh, processes? So I'm curious to hear your opinion. Um, obviously, we've now have a lot of uh, experience, we're growing experience uh, with artificial intelligence within, uh, especially in the cybersecurity sector with ChatGPT and all of the other different AI tools. How do you think that will be able to benefit, um, especially asset visibility within MES or just uh, AI benefit cybersecurity within MES in general? Mm -hmm. I, I think we can learn from, I mean, AI to me personally, is just, um, you know, we really, shorten the learning process really quickly with a massive amount of data so you know the same thing as teaching a baby what to do like take three four years right but with an ai you get all the data that you need out whether it's publicly available the model data model same thing does apply to cybersecurity, right uh so for example if you do like those cves Right, we have massive amount of data around CVEs, and then if the uh, the data can actually go after impact of the CVEs, then you can actually have prepare the uh, cybersecurity team to see what's the likelihood of impact 
of this particular CVE when you are trying to come up with a mitigation plan. And also, you know, if you uh, combine some of the data from CVEs to the fixes to the, you know, test cases for the fixes, then eventually we have automated generation of those test cases when the CVE comes about. So those are the things that can help with AI and machine learning that I see immediately with the cybersecurity. So mostly, you know, a lot of things that is very data intensive and you didn't even think about uh, because there's so much data. I didn't even think about that if I can do that. And maybe you can think about it as, can I use some kind of this, uh, you know, AI ML related model, you know, transformer to transform this data into something useful. And a lot of things with AI within software is a try and error, right? They tried a bunch of things and they got into a certain stage, like chat GPT is this what version three or version four. They try many things and they're still going into it. I believe four is coming out uh, soon and, 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 and different things that you didn't think about. And, and I think it's a, that's where I think a bit of optimism on my end is we don't know what we don't know, but it's going to get better um, before it gets worse and then better, right? <laughs> um, and uh, I just heard that also there's a uh, the, the AI model called Bark actually uh, mimics the uh, human emotions. You can actually, it, it actually generates uh, the, the laughs and sadness. You know, when you talk to Siri, Alexa, or ChatGPT, there's no emotion whatsoever. It just reads whatever. And this one actually uh, generates, uh, you know, the kind of laughters. And, you know, so you really cannot dis distinguish if you're talking to an AI-generated voices or actual human being. So it's going to get blurry. Uh, so, but the, the like I said, the biggest benefit currently that I see is the enormous data that you didn't you used to you know you get all these logs from different things and used to just back it up it's been archived and you look at it with the ai ml model maybe you can take a look at it and see what it actually generates what kind of analytics it generates and that's a you know a bit of optimism on my end with uh, the ai ml side of things especially for the manufacturing uh industry it's interesting. Tyler and I had a conversation probably about a week ago about this is the worst version of chat GPT that will ever exist. The one that's right now, it's just going to get better and better and better. Exactly. And I don't know if that's a comforting thought or a scary thought. I think yeah. for me, it's a scary thought. Yeah. It's, um, it's a bit of unknown, right? So <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm going to close this out here. One last question. Um, what do you see as some of the emerging trends or maybe technologies in industrial cybersecurity that could help or that are going to impact MES systems in the near future? Um, I see a lot. Uh, so we, I think we will need to learn from those, you know, web application industry. Uh, so the biggest thing right now is like, I, I see two side of things, mostly to do with the infrastructures and platforms and management. And, 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 and another side of this, this observability. Um, it is, do you actually have a monitoring or metrics and things that that's out there and looking at things for you? Uh, so, um, you know, the cloud system has a observability like resource management and alerts and uh, the notification functionality. So uh, I, I think uh, that is the big thing that enterprise application vendors will have to deliver to manufacturing facility. Not only do you do functional things, or but also do you provide ways to 
maintain the system and securely. And security comes with monitoring and audits and traceability, all of those things, right? Uh, if you have a lot of logs and out there and they're not giving you any, uh, you know, the information back to you that is actionable information, that doesn't mean anything, right? A lot of logs don't mean anything. So I think it's the big thing is observability. Uh, you need to have proper tools and techniques and even procedures out there and there's a fatigue with a uh, alert and notification too. I've heard like you know those um, you know site reliability engineers looking at the you know the alerts. Ninety percent is just something just noisy. So I think that's where another uh, area that AI and ML can help you. Whether the you know the the particular logs and alerts are really you know concerning logs and alerts, or do, uh, are they just a noise? So those areas, but uh, you know that's. I think that I see is the big, big thing that needs to happen, uh, and also the trend that I see in the the enterprise application and the web application in general. Got it, Sung. Great information. Thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate having you. All right, my pleasure, and uh, thanks for inviting me. It was a really great conversation. All right, everybody, that was Sung Kim, Chief Product and Technology Officer with iBase T. Another really interesting conversation. Uh, we appreciate him sitting down with us. We tried to have this conversation several times and kept having internet issues. So the first day he was having internet issues, and then the second day I was having internet issues, and then he was going on vacation. And so we all had to fit this one in, but uh, interesting conversation with Sung. One of the things I took from this, and I think we talked about it right at the end there was, you know, observability, like having the proper tools, techniques, procedures for, for being able to see all of your systems properly, seeing what's out there. So you can, like we talked a lot about CVEs in the conversation, the ability to manage those CVEs effectively, uh, taking a risk-based approach to them, trying to figure out what's important to you. And we spent a lot of time on this podcast lately talking about AI and ML. Um, and the, the thing that keeps getting said by people in the cybersecurity space is, yeah, things like chat bots, chat GPT are neat and they're interesting and we're all figuring out what they do. But really the way that AI ML is impacting cybersecurity in the present is, is, routinizing a lot of these things that really humans shouldn't be wasting their time doing. So going through all these CVEs, being able to filter out the noise of all these alerts, it just can really help simplify that process. It's already being used to do that and probably will be used to do that even more in the future. Mm. Yeah. I also liked what he was saying about, again, just how we got, because we got into SBOMs a little bit, right? Software bill of materials and how they can play a role in not necessarily the zero trust process of um, cybersecurity, but in helping keep these uh, uh, blah, 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 uh, these MES, MES systems secure. It was a wonderful noise, by the way. Yeah, thank you. That was my brain buffering noise. That's what that was. Right. Um, well, uh, another fun one, another good conversation. Love having these. Uh, you know, Tyler and I know a little bit about cybersecurity. No, maybe more than a little bit, but still learn a lot from these conversations every time. One of the first times we've been talking about MES systems on here specifically, so uh, was an interesting one. Um, thanks so much for joining us. If you want to get in contact with us, and why wouldn't you? We're delightful people. Mm. You can always contact us. I am at gcohen at cfemedia.com. 
And I am T Wall at CFEmedia.com. Thank you for copying my cadence on that. You're it welcome. was really seamless. <laughs> You're welcome. And of course, for great content, visit us at icspulse.com or industrialcybersecuritypulse.com for all of our fantastic and magical videos, articles, this own very podcast right here that drops every other Tuesday. And yeah, we'll catch you in the next one. Talk to you next time. Thanks for being with us.